things to come. Um, we are going to finish Philippians today. We'll be done with the, the book today. And then uh, going forward, I believe Aaron will be up here uh, soon, possibly next Sunday. No, I've got a friend coming next Sunday uh, that, uh, that Carl and I have known for years who's going to come and uh, fill in. And uh, then we'll have Aaron up and Vince will be up and possibly others. So lots of uh, good things. And uh, Lynette will be up. No, Lynette won't be up. No. <laughs> but uh, uh, we will uh, we'll be looking forward to, uh, to hearing from some great people uh, here in the next, uh, next couple of weeks. This morning we close out uh, Philippians with chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. You can turn to that. Philippians 4. Paul begins by saying, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand, for, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I, also, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and you have heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace be with you. How are we feeling in 2020? We feeling good? All right, we got a thumbs up right there. Got a couple of thumbs ups. That's good. How many people are anxious about what's to come in 2020? Anyone? Somewhat? A little bit? A few here? Anybody worry about anything in their life or stress about anything? A couple of you? Here? There? Gallup did a poll in the end of 2019 to ask across the globe how people did in the areas of stress and worry. They asked things like, did you worry yesterday? And if you worried yesterday, did you worry the day before? And if you worried the day before, did you worry last week? And how are you feeling about your job? And how are you feeling about how your kids are going? And how are you feeling about how the grandkids are doing? And how are you feeling about your future if you're younger? And how are you feeling about your future if you're older? And they asked all these different questions to measure stress and to measure worry. And when it was done... For the third year in a row, Americans reported feeling stress, anger, and worry at the highest levels in a decade, and the highest levels reported across the globe. We are the country that is number one or number two in finance. We have uh, all of these things at, at our disposal. We have uh, the, the least amount of poverty per capita. We have all of these areas where we are, if not the leader, in the top four or five, and yet we worry the most about what might come. We stressed the most about what, what might come. 
What really stood out for the U.S. was the increase in the negative experiences people held, said the managing editor. This was kind of a surprise when we saw the numbers head in this direction. That as things that have progressed, as science has progressed, if opportunities have progressed, as unemployment is at its lowest numbers, as things all seem to be on paper looking like this country should be feeling okay, in spite of all that, people said they have more negative experiences than positive experiences in 2018 than they had in 2017, and they thought the thing, same thing would be the same in 2019. About 55% of adults said they had experienced stress a lot of the day, compared with just 30% globally. Stress declined globally, anger decreased globally, both of those things increased for us. Worry and sadness were at an all-time high. It, it just didn't make any sense to the group at Gala. What I find interesting is the things we worry about. Worry, worry about lead in our water, because it happened to Flint and Detroit, it could happen anywhere. So we put the water faucets on, right? the, the, the filters on the faucets. Right now, what is the biggest sickness that's going to kill us all if you're to read the news? Coronavirus. How many cases of coronavirus are there in the U.S. right now today? Fifteen. That means that everybody in this room could go to the auto show right now and touch every car and knob in the auto show and hug every person there and we still would only increase our chances of getting the coronavirus by 0.005%. But we're worried about it. And we're concerned about it. And when we, and we go in lockdown about it because we're worried about that, that thing that might, uh, that might get us. Meanwhile, people skip the flu shot. But the flu shot had a more, right now has a mortality rate of 7% in the U.S., which is the reason why you wouldn't want to go to the auto show and hug everybody and touch every car and everything else. You won't get the coronavirus, but you might get the flu, okay? We skipped that flu shot. 20% uh, of Americans smoke. 20% of Americans don't wear seatbelts. 30% of Americans are worried about shark attacks. Only a small percentage of us lives anywhere we could be attacked by a shark. Over 50% of motorcyclists will never wear a helmet. And 75% of us that text admit to texting while driving. And so we worry about all of these things over here. The coronavirus is going to get us, or the lead in the water might get us, but the numbers of those possibilities are very low. And then we go to these, the, those are the perceived threats, but the real threats are the things that we don't put as much emphasis in. It's a wonder why we're not happy. We're not even sure what we're supposed to worry about. It's natural to worry about your future. It's natural to worry about your career. It's natural to be concerned about different things. If you start to compare yourself to people around you, you know, of friends around you are getting married and you're not even dating somebody, some people will worry about that. You go, your kid goes out for a ball team and you notice they don't have as much time on the court as the other kids. People worry about that. What's my kid doing wrong? Maybe the coach doesn't like my kid. I've got to figure that out, you know. You turn on the news during an election cycle, they tell you, here's the things you're supposed to worry about today. We're going to hand those to you, you know. And then if you notice, I, I often share that as administrations change on a national level, the things we did worry about go away. It doesn't mean they were solved, they're just gone now. And a new, whole new set of things to worry about comes in, and each time I'm told, that's the most important thing you have to worry about. You've got to focus on that, that thing. We've got to fix that. 
but we didn't fix the last seven things that we were told to fix. Don't worry about those. Those don't matter anymore. This is the thing we're going to fix today. And I can see why we get so upset if we're always worried about my career and my advancement, my kids, how they're doing, how they're not doing, my neighbors, whether they're doing more or not doing more, and whether or not my team, whether it be political or social or otherwise, is advancing the ball down the road. And in the midst of all of this, Americans are stressed, and Paul tells us to be content. Verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He says, you know, I am very thankful to you, church, as I close this letter out. I can see that you didn't have an opportunity to care for me before, but you do now. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. In other words, I don't feel neglected, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have to learn the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says, yeah, you guys have got stresses in life. You've got a world that's always trying to tell you to be stressed or tell you not to be stressed, and that stresses some people out. Tell you what's important, tell you what's not important. You yourself know some of these things are important and you're uncertain about their future, and that can really ramp up a high level of stress. And Paul says, be content, because you have got Lord on your side, and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that last part that I just uh, read has been quoted over and over again. You see it at youth retreats, you see it at, at, at uh, seminars that people go to, and often it's the idea of overcoming whatever obstacle they face. The idea that there isn't a single thing in my life that I won't be able to do since I have God. I don't know that it's entirely fair to read it that way, but I do know it's fair to read it in the context of the letter. And Paul has written a wonderful letter of encouragement to the church he loves. He's poured out his heart for how much he loves them, how much he loves uh, their testimony, and how happy their testimony has made him. Paul has challenged this group of people that they need to live a life centered on Christ. They needed to live a life in community that's, that's focused on God. They need to live a life in community that focuses on serving the Lord. And he's gone so far as to say that the secret to happiness is to make God your priority and make pleasing God and following his way your only priorities and let all of this fall into place. In that context, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can love all of you, and you can love all of me, and we can be there for one another, because Christ has given us the strength to do that. I can live a life in community with you and serve a community around us that sometimes is very difficult to serve, because Christ has given me the strength to do that. I can face a tomorrow that I don't even have planned out yet. And some of you planners just twitched a little bit in your eyebrow. Because God has got it under control. We shared last week. I don't need to know the map of the course God has me on. I know that he's mapped the course. I just need to make sure I'm seeing him right there in the distance, each, each step of the way that I'm taking. Paul says, I can do all things. You know, Paul re reveals a lot about himself, I think, in this letter. 
We've spoken before that at this current state, he's in prison. He's chained to a guard most of the day. Paul's been beaten, shipwrecked, beaten again, wrongfully accused. Now he's in prison, and he'll probably, he, I know he'll be there again. And through this all, Paul has the weight of leading church plants all over the known world. Some of them are fighting over whether the rich people should get to take communion first, because they paid for the communion. Others of them are fighting over whether or not the guy that's going to speak that Sunday has got the right credentials, the right doctrine, or if he's better than Paul or this. Some are saying Silas is better than Paul. He's got missionaries who are bailing out on him. He's got fledgling young churches that he hasn't heard from in months that he's trying to figure out what's going on with him. And he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. We don't know stress like Paul knows stress, I guarantee you. If, if you want to put your life up against his, we can, we can do this. That'd be an interesting exercise in Diggs, but I don't know if Diggs would want to go that far into it as a, as a comparison side by side. My stress this week, Paul's stress is that probably same week, you know, that sort of thing. He had a lot going on. And he had a lot of things in the air. And he said, in the midst of all that, I can still be content. I can do all things for Christ who gets me strength. I'm glad he didn't say I can get everything done on my checklist because Christ gives me strength. That's not what he said at all. I can do all things. I am content. Maybe I didn't understand the word contentment. Maybe that's why I have stress in my life I misunderstood. What is contentment? Well, a modern-day definition of contentment is a state of satisfaction, a state of being satisfied. In modern-day America, people say they are satisfied when they achieve a goal. Some of them, it is X amount of dollars in the bank and X amount of dollars in the 401k. For some people, it's the right car in front of the right house. For others, it's the right number of children going to the right schools, getting ready for the right college. For others, it's having the kid that's going to be the varsity out there. For still others, it's seeing that their, that their career trajectory is exactly where they wanted it to go. For others, it's having that vacation home in, in Wisconsin with the boat. There's all of these different areas that we talk about. Still some are saying, get out of Illinois and go retire and go somewhere else. But we all have these lists that we say, that will make me happy. If you don't think you have that list, let me ask you to ask this question in your own head. I will be happy as soon as I... I will be happy as soon as I, and just fill in whatever it is in your head that you have. The interesting thing about that list is the stinking thing keeps moving on us. You could, you know, when, when, when I was in, in high school, uh, I thought, well, the day that I would, could earn, uh, say, $50,000, I would be happy. 1989, that would have been okay money. $50,000 in 2020? It's not as okay. Some, someone moved the line on me. These kids, I watched these kids play basketball and baseball. Man, they are good. You got, kids, you got parents now that are sending their kids to a speed camp. Then they're sending them to a hitting skills camp. Then they're set, sending them to a, a defensive drills camp. And their whole life is that. And then football, they're up there every day doing it over and over and over again. How are we supposed to compete with that? And when you get to work and you're making your, your trough right up the list of things, then pretty soon you achieved what you wanted and someone tells you there's something just beyond that. Oh, well, that's the next thing I've got to get. 
and then some stinker in leadership does something wrong and they mess up your whole plan. You know, I worked for five years for Arthur Anderson. You know that I was just thinking, talking to someone about this the other day. I think we were told in March, towards the middle of March, that there was a problem at Arthur Anderson and that uh, they were working it out. Don't worry about a thing. 87,000 employees. Don't worry about a thing, 87,000. Your leaders have got this under control. Five weeks later, they were out of business. Five weeks later, they didn't exist anymore. 87,000 people carrying cardboard boxes out of buildings all over, the United, all over the world. What kind of stress do you think that put to somebody's plans in life when they said, I'll be content when I get this job at the corner office and the corner office got taken away from them? All of these different areas that we can put in for, for contentment, it makes sense now that great theologian Mick Jagger, when he said, I can't get no... <laughs> Satisfaction. That's exactly right. So some people had a solution to this. They were called the Stoics. The Stoics had this great idea, and it's kind of like the Amish. Well, if all, trying to get all these things and achieving all these things is causing us so much stress, then let's go back to nothing. A Stoic would say, you just need enough to survive on. You need a room, you need a table to, to set that piece of bread on, and you need a piece of bread, and you need a, something, a cot to lay your head on each night, and you don't need anything else. And the Stoics said... They didn't even need a bath, I think. The Stoics said, we are as minimalist as it gets. We don't need anything else. Do you know that in itself became a stress? Amish had to figure out as they went on, and they were like, we are going to be a stress-free life. We're not going to have electricity or anything. And then someone said, well, if you want to run a farm that people are going to buy food from, you're going to need a little bit of electricity because we can't have you selling rancid food. So you're going to have to figure that out. And they need a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And even the desire to be minimalist becomes a contest in seeing how much we can have. So you can stress about having a lot, or you can stress about having a little. And Paul says in here he had both. And in both situations, he was content. How is that possible? We, we could spend a lot of time on that subject, but I came across in a commentary something that I completely stole. This commentator said, contentment is an inner sense of rest or peace that comes from being right with God and knowing that He is in control of all that happens to us. Contentment is an inner sense of rest or peace that comes from being right with God and knowing that He is in control of all that happens to us. No matter what's happening out here, I can be at peace inside here and inside here because I know that he's got this under control. What does that tell me about being content? First, it tells me that contentment isn't found in what I have. As I said, Americans have it all, but they're the most stressed. And Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I know what it's like to be invited to the table where the great food is being served and all the wonderful things are going on. But I also know what it's like to go days without any food at all. And he says, I can tell you I'm, I'm fine either way. I know what it's like to, eat, to, to uh, be put up in the finest of hotels throughout the known region at the time. And I also know what it's like to spend my night in a jail cell or shipwrecked on an island with a bunch of bitter people. And yet I've been content in all things. So if that's true then what I have will not make me content. 
what I don't have will not make me content. I can tell you I was sharing with, uh, with someone a couple of weeks ago because they were so happy to see me because I was driving a 2017 vehicle. It's the newest thing I've ever owned in my life. What I had gotten rid of was a 2002 Toyota Avalon with 315,000 miles on it. Hayden and I drove it to Missouri, and I'm like, come on, baby. Just a few more miles, and it's all over for you. You got a junkyard in your future? You know I missed that car? It was a nice car. It was comfortable. It was great. You know I had employees telling me that car scared them. They thought it was possessed by the way it looked. But it bothered people that I didn't have a newer car. And now I've got a newer car, and I like the newer car. But after a few months of having it, do I feel any better than the car I had? No. And then I got in a guy's car the other day, and he had rain-sensing wipers. And I was like, I don't have rain-sensing wipers. I'm going to trade this sucker in and get rain-sensing wipers on this thing. Be content. And then the auto show shows up. And they show you the 2021s after some poor guy's just bought a 2020. And then he gets to see all the things. There's going to be a new stereo in that thing. Or one guy was telling me how there'd be two more gears in the transmission. And I'm like, and what does that mean to you? I don't know, but I got to have them. <laughs> you know, look at the, the size of the house my grandparents raised my uh, uh, uncle and dad and, and aunt in. 1,200 square feet, maybe. Probably closer to 1,000. No dining room living room. When we had Easter, we had all of these people there for Easter. I'm like, how on earth did we do it? Well, some crammed in the kitchen. Some had TV trays in the, in the living room. The kids, we were told to either go downstairs or if it was warm enough, just go outside. Just be done with it. And those were some of the greatest memories in my life. And then we get bigger and bolder in this. And, that. and there's nothing wrong with bigger. There's nothing wrong with smaller. I'm just saying you're not going to be content either way. Content is not to be found in what we have. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And then he says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. In other words, contentment isn't what happens to me. You know, when Jesus was asked to turn the water and the wine, he was at a wedding, right? I believe he was content at that wedding. A little annoyed mom bothered him, but otherwise very content. When Jesus was out preaching the Sermon on the Mount, people were getting it. I believe he was probably content. When Jesus would look at the disciples and go, how long must I be with you guys? You're just not getting it. I think he was still content. And when Jesus was bound in chains and hauled off from a garden to go face certain death, there was only one person calm in that entire situation, was there? And that was Jesus. Very different circumstances. And in each and every one, he was content. He was calm. What I don't want us to misunderstand, though, is he wasn't complacent. Some people say, well, if contentment isn't found in what I have, and content isn't found, contentment isn't found in what, I, what happens to me, then I can just sit back and let it all happen and take nothing, and I don't have to worry about advancement or whatever, and whatever may come, may come. Que sera, sera, right? Now, I think the Bible extols hard work. And I think it even talks about the reward that can come from hard work as long as we are free from greed and as long as those things aren't your ultimate goal. If you're single and want to be married, I think that's great. As long as you're not consumed with the quest that you start to lack sound judgment that comes from waiting patiently on the Lord. 
if you're in an unpleasant job, there is nothing wrong with going back to school to train for a better job or from making a change to another job as long as you do so in submission to the will of God. We were talking this morning and Anna said the funniest thing. She said, do you know I was pregnant when we started this pastor search thing? And now he's seven months old? We were like, wow! But we all agreed that that's okay. We are content in whatever the Lord would have for us on this journey, whatever lessons he teaches us on this journey. We're fine with that. And we are committed to do whatever he would have us do to make the right decision and to be wise about it. But it was just funny because there can be an urgency in some people's minds that their head, they put together a timeline on God of when this would happen. And if it didn't happen in that timeline, they're frustrated. And Anna said, it's just funny. I was pregnant with him, and now, now, I'm, now I'm here he is sitting up and sitting in the sermon. I said, I hope he's not shaving before we're done. But, you know, that's the only thing I'm asking about all of it. That is a joke. Some of you are worried, no, we're not going to be up to shaving all these things. Being content simply means that when I pursue things in life, I can be satisfied with where the Lord has me today. It doesn't mean I'm not ambitious. It just means I'm okay with where he's got me today. It doesn't mean I don't want more or less. It just means I know that I'm where he wants me today. It means my focus is on the kingdom of God and serving him, not on serving my next ambition or my next goal. If God grants me material comforts, I can thank them for him from his loving hand. If God makes it so that I have to ask someone for my next meal, I can thank God that there's somebody that I can ask for my next meal. Contentment means that I am satisfied with where the Lord has me today. Contentment also means I'm not being battered about by difficult circumstances or people and then being pursued, uh, uh, tempted to try and get myself out of those circumstances no matter what it takes. God can put some difficult people in our lives. You know, Paul prayed about the thorn in the side and theologians love to theorize who, who that thorn in the side might have been. I don't think Paul said it was a person, but we've all decided it was a person because we all have in our head who that thorn in our side is. There's an old joke that says, if you don't have a thorn in your side, then you're probably it for somebody else. But I'm, that's <laughs> <laughs> And Paul says, it's okay. I prayed for God to remove that thorn in the side. I prayed over and over again, but he didn't remove it. And Paul didn't say, I took matters into my own hands to figure it out. Paul said, I'm content. If God has that person in my life or that situation in my life, I'm okay with it. And if God has in my life that we're going to hear about a coronavirus, we're going to go through a political season, we're going to have a job in middle management or have a job in, in, in serving others, going to live in a house in suburbs, I can be content in all of that. And if God says, I have a whole other thing for you, I need to be content in that as well. The last thing I'll tell you that contentment is not, it's not genetic. We all know those people who just seem to, seem to get it. They seem to always be calm and content and everything. And, and I'm just so amazed at how well they do with all of that. And I say, it must be their upbringing, or it must be the genes, or it must be this, or it must be that. Every baby that comes out, do they look content when they come out of the womb? No. They've got demands from the second they hit uh, the outside world, don't they? I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm wondering why this place isn't as nice as the apartment you just moved me out of. They have all of these things. And then you take them home, and even as content as they are, they still let you know when they're not content 
or when they're upset, and then you've got to figure all that out. No, contentment is not genetic. Contentment is learned. Look at verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then later in verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and, of feast, uh, and hunger, abundance and need. I have learned. Contentment isn't something you're born with. It isn't even this wonderful sanctification moment where God just suddenly, and you're content. Contentment is that journey of sanctification that God teaches you what it's like to rest in his strength, to believe on him, to start looking up at him and stop looking at around the things, things of this world. Um, we had a, a terrible thing when I worked at uh, Northwestern Hospital. One of my guys hit a button. And when he hit the button, he wiped out every PC in all the hospitals for all of Northwestern. And the good news is he didn't leave a single one untouched. Went out of his way to really blow the thing up, you know. I got a call on lunch, and he's like, yeah, we had this problem. And I'm like, well, just take care of it. He's like, you don't understand the problem. And he explained it to me, and I can still remember my mind just going completely blank. I have no idea what to do at this moment. So I drive back to where we're all meeting. And that led to hours of myself and my boss trying to corral 25 engineers who all had a different opinion on what it was going to take to fix this thing. And we tell them, this group go work on this, this group work on this, this group work on this. Then they'd all kind of beehive together over here and start working on it all together again. And we're yelling at them and screaming at them. And the whole thing is going just so chaotic. And by the end of the night, we finally had it to the point where we could start to run as a hospital again. Not great, but we could get there. And over the next three weeks, we cleaned up that mess. And I had to go around and apologize to people for how I talked to them. And I had one contractor leave. He was, he was from Nigeria. And he said, I escaped my country to get rid of treatment like what you guys just did to me. We still sort of laugh about it in a gallows humor sort of way because he said it tongue-in-cheek, but I don't think he was far off the mark. And it all just was horrible, and it was embarrassing, and I prayed to the Lord about it and, and really thought through it. Do you know how funny God is? Thirteen months later, guess what happened? Different engineer this time, same result. Blew up every PC in the company again. Well, after you've been through it the first time, you know, second time's a charm, I guess. So I... This time, stood up a phone call, said, I just want leadership on this call. I want technicians on this call. Myself and one other person will act as a liaison between the two. And we were able to put a plan. Okay, you go to this hospital. You put that together, that together, that together, and go through. What do you got? And the guy's like, da, 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 da. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. We're going to let this person talk now. The rest of us are going to be quiet. I got on the app that I can run conference calls with, and I muted everyone else's line. They were texting me to tell me they were talking, but nobody was listening. I knew they were talking and nobody was listening. I was the guy who did it. And we calmly went through the whole thing, and by the end of the night, same number of hours of night, every PC in the company was fully restored back to where they were. We were high-fiving. The worst part about it was that I asked the guy to go get dinner for all of us, and I said, remember, we have vegetarians and dietary restrictions. He ordered a pepperoni pizza and said they could pick the pepperoni off. <laughs> that was the version of vegetarianism. But when we got through it all, they came to me, and they were like, we were amazed at how calm you were. And I wish I could take the credit for it, but it really was God who said, look at what you had done back there. That's embarrassing. 
Now let's try it my way. And let's calm down and be content. So what are those steps we need to learn to be content? And I'll, I'll, I'll quickly go through, uh, go through these. And he puts that back up at, at the top. We're going to start at verse 4. What are the steps? Paul says, I'm glad you asked those steps. I've written you an entire book on all the steps it takes to be content. It's called Philippians. And if you didn't get it, go back and read the letter again, Paul says. There's good stuff in here on being content. And Paul says, I'm going to wrap it up at the close of the letter and share with you some pieces once again. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. You know what I love about this? never hit me until actually last night. Paul's not asking. You want to be content? Rejoice in the Lord. Well, how am I supposed to do that in the middle of my pain? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, and again, I'm going to say rejoice. This is important enough. I need you guys to get this just in case you forgot. And I think the reason why he says rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice. Because he knows it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be something that we get immediately. What this tells me is that joy is a choice. My joy, my happiness is a choice. It's not a feeling and it's not a circumstance. Joy is a decision, it's not a sensation. Joy is an outlook on life based on looking up at Him and not looking around at all of this. How often should we rejoice? All the time. You say, how on earth do I do that? Well, as he says, you start to rejoice in the Lord. You start to remember. You testify. If you've got nothing to testify about what's happening today, you've got plenty to testify about what happened yesterday. All you have to do is do a little journal of what happened in your day, and you're going to reveal little things over and over and over. You could have had the worst day on earth, and at the end of that you can say, Lord, I rejoice that you carried me through this day, that you got me through to the next thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. If you want to be content, God says you have got to relook at what your contentment comes from. And it doesn't come from out here, it comes from out up there. So I need you to realign your thinking, and you're going to do that by rejoicing in me. To put it another way, life is tough, but God is good. And then he goes on from there and he says in verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And just earlier, he was talking about some possible turmoil in the church. And he asked the church, come along these two wonderful servants of God that seem to be having a disagreement. And I want you to come around together. I want you all to rejoice together. I want you all to remember together that you're in my personality, whether it conflicts or it gets along great, isn't the priority. Your relationship to me, being God, is what brings you all back together again. So verse 5 kind of doubles down on that and says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is a person who just has this big bucket of mercy. And every time there's a problem, every time there's some shortcomings, they're not the person pointing it out. They're the person granting mercy and favor in that. You know, I think when I look at uh, uh, recovery programs, they're doing design for work right now and I have a friend who's part of it, and I unfortunately couldn't be part of it this year. And uh, he said that a guy sitting at the table with him is a Wayside Cross graduate and is a Design for Work graduate, and he's now going to be helping lead these, these other men. And he says, I am so excited. 
He says, because there's going to be things they tell me that I can't understand why they can't just figure it out. But that guy already the first night has known when to be loving and kind and when being more like, oh, come on now, guys. Let's be honest with one another. Because he's lived it. God is teaching him through those journeys in life what it takes to show mercy and kindness and justice to someone else. And we can rejoice in that. And then Paul goes on to say, after you rejoice in the Lord always, after you show mercy to each other, in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything be prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Everything in prayer. If you want to get rid of the anxiety in your life, put prayer in your life. And he's really saying, cast all of your cares upon him. Don't take your problems and your cares and try and figure them out on your own because that's not going to work very well. Take all of your problems and cares and give them over to the Lord. Why is it the very thing we should do first is often the last thing we try? Yeah, I thought about this. In, uh, uh, we just had a situation at work like this where a team was working for two weeks on a problem and they had it all wound up. And at 3 o'clock on a Friday, they finally decided to let us know that they had a problem which meant we all had to stay there till 7 o'clock. But do you know that in four hours we had the thing 100% solved? And I'm going out to the car with one of the guys from the team that just spent a couple of weeks on it. He goes, I would have never thought to do any of those things. And I'm like, you don't have to. The one thing you have to do is that after a certain amount of time on your own, and I mean like a couple of minutes, make a phone call. And then I thought, that's not relatable to you guys. It's because we're in IT, it's relatable to dentists, but maybe not many others. How many of you read the directions when you get a, something to build at home? One, two. That's it. Every, under 30 so far. I don't see anybody over 30 raising their hands. But what do we do? We get that thing all messed up and jacked up and everything else. We put it together 14 times. Then we pull out the, the directions and we go, why do I have this handful of stuff over here? And God says, why are you doing that in your life as well? If you want to know a life that's contentment, you focus on me and you put everything that happens in your life, no matter how big, no matter how small, it comes in prayer. And it starts with prayer, it goes on to supplication, to thanksgiving, and then your requests. God gives us the order. He says prayer. Another way to say this is praise. He says take a moment and prepare yourself. You're in the presence of the creator of the universe. Don't start hitting me with needs like you're in line at the DMV wanting a driver's license. Take a moment and slow down, calm yourself. Recognize the moment that you have. I love Paul and Silas in this, because remember the first time they went to Philippi, they took a beating and they went to jail. Now, if I took a beating and I went to jail and I didn't know the next morning was coming, what would I be doing? Oh, Lord, please, you've got to get me out of this. You've got to get me out of this. You've got to get me out of this. I can't, I can't, I'm too gentle, Lord. I can't go to jail. 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 Paul looked at Silas and said, you got any good songs? I feel like a song. Why don't we start singing a praise song to the Lord and see what happens tonight? And they started singing a song. Can you imagine the jailer going, I have never in all my years heard anybody sing a single song in this jail. Paul says, oh, we'll get to the need later. Interestingly enough, I think God probably already knows our need, just like he knows your need and my need. So why don't I make my mind right on this situation? Why don't I find my way to contentment? And it's not going to be by focusing on my need. It's going to be focusing on who he is. And so Paul says, let's start a song. 
And so we start with prayer. But he says, God says, you can still ask. Supplication is that knocking on the door over and over and over again. And that's okay. God says, you can be persistent in, in your ask. So pray to God. Get that presence right. Take that persistence with God. You're there every day. Thank him for what he's already done and what he's going to do. And then when you get to the ask, it's more to see if your ask is still the same thing. The thing I wanted at the beginning of my prayer time is it still the same thing I wanted when now you and I, Lord, are spending some time together. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, find time to pray. And then finally in verse 8 and 9, he says, think on these things. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure and lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any worthy of praise about these things, what you have learned or received and have heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. A group of college professors were asked to review the thoughts around all of these self-help books that come out and all these motivational books that come out and all these books that are meant to motivate you to improve something either in your life or in the world around you. And they said the challenge to the professors was come up with a single thought or phrase that could sum up what they are. And I don't care if it's a diet book or a business book or, or, a, or a mental book, whatever it is, is there a single thread that goes through all of them? And this is what they came up with. What the mind attends to, it considers. What the mind does not attend to, it dismisses. What the mind continually attends to, it believes. And what the mind believes, it does. Paul says, start with what the mind needs to continually attend to. Put your mind on the things of God. Spend time in His Word. Spend time in His truths. Talk to others about it. Spend some time shutting off the phone, shutting off the distractions, shutting off the other things, and just be silent and still before God. And meditate on the truths. You can start off by thinking about the problems you had of the day, but overlay those with the truths of God. And overlay them over and over again. And when you meditate on those, eventually you believe it's true. Jesus caused the disciples to see and observe and meditate over and over again on the idea of serving and on the idea of humility and the idea of he who is first shall be last. And then finally he put a new action one night in an upper room when he got down on his knees and he washed the feet of the very people that were serving under him. And they looked in awe and amazement at it. And he said, the same way I'm doing this, I need you to do for others. He took that, that thought that had captured them for all those years and showed them in real action what it looks like. So we have to captivate that thought. If we're pondering what our opportunities are in life and we're not pondering who God is, then we're not going to be content. If I'm pondering where I'm successful or failure, but I'm not, I'm not pondering uh, how God is speaking into my heart, then I'm not going to be content. If I'm worried about the things that happened this week at work or at home, or even embarrassed by how I dealt with them, but I'm not talking to God about his truths in those moments, I'm never going to be content. Paul says, think on these things and then put them into action. Let's pray.